Hi, and this is a reading from Joyful Militancy by Montgomery and Bergen, pages 83 uh, to 105. Friendship is the root of freedom. These are not just words, they are clues and prods to earthquakes in kin-making that are not limited to Western family apparatuses, heteronormative or not. Donna Haraway. Freedom and friendship used to mean the same thing. Intimate, interdependent relationships and the commitment to face the world together. At its root, relational freedom isn't about being unrestricted. It might mean the capacity for interconnectedness and attachment, or mutual support and care, or shared gratitude and openness to an uncertain world, or a new capacity to fight alongside others. But this is not what freedom has come to mean under empire. Look for the def dictionary definition of freedom today and you'll find rights, absences and lack of restrictions at the core applied to an isolated individual. Here are some of its definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary. The power or right to act, speak or think as one wants. We do have some freedom of choice. The state not being imprisoned or enslaved. The shark thrashed its way to freedom. The state of not being subject to or affected by something undesirable government policies to achieve freedom from want. At bottom, all of these definitions are about getting away from external restriction or influence, being unhindered, unaffected and independent. Under capitalism, freedom is especially associated with free markets and the free agent who chooses based on individual preferences. In spite of colonisation and capitalism, this vapid form of freedom still can't get a foothold in many parts of the world. Even in Europe, where so many tools of colonisation were refined, the roots of freedom were different. Centuries ago, some Europeans had a more relational conception of freedom, which wasn't just about the absence of external constraints, but also about our immersion in the relationships that sustain us and make us thrive. Freedom and friend share the same early Indo-European root, free or pre, meaning love. This route made its way into Gothic, Norse, Celtic, Hindi, Russian and German. A thousand years ago, the Germanic word for friend was the present participle of the verb freon, to love. This language also had an adjective, frija. It meant free, as in not in slavery, where the reason to avoid slavery was to be among loved ones. Frija meant beloved, belonging to the circle of one's beloved friends and family. As the Invisible Committee writes in To Our Friends, friend and free in English come from the same Indo-European root, which conveys the idea of a shared power that grows. Being free and having ties was one and the same thing. I am free because I have ties, because I am linked to a reality greater than me. A few centuries later, freedom became untied from connectedness. The 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes imagined freedom as nothing more than an absence of opposition, possessed by isolated, selfish individuals. For Hobbes, the free man is constantly armed and on guard. When going to sleep, he locks his doors, when even in his house he locks his chests, says Hobbes. The free individual lives in fear and can only feel secure when he knows there are laws and police to protect him and his possessions. He is definitely he, because this individual is also founded on patriarchal male supremacy 
and its associated divisions of mind slash body, aggression slash submission, rationality slash emotion, and so on. His so-called autonomy is inseparable from his exploitation of others. When peasants were freed during this period, it often meant that they had been forced from their lands and their means of subsistence, leaving them free to sell their labour for a wage in the factories or starve. It is no coincidence that these lonely conceptions of freedom arose at the same time as the European witch trials, the enclosure of common lands, the rise of the trans transatlantic slave trade, and the colonisation and genocide of the Americas. At the same time as the meaning of freedom was divorced from friendship and connection, the lived connections between people and places were being dismembered. As empire was enclosing lands and bodies, it was overseeing the enclosure of thought as well. The age of reason was marked by a new kind of knowledge that could subdue and control nature and the human body, enabling capitalist rationalisation and work discipline. Time and space would become measurable, stable and fixed. Bodies were no longer conduits for magical forces, but machines to be harnessed for production. Plants, animals and other non-human creatures were no longer kin, but objects to be dissected and consumed. Even among intellectuals in Europe, not everyone agreed with Hobbes's fearful vision of freedom and the divisions imposed by Cartesian thought. Descartes' contemporary, Baruch Spinoza, articulated a philosophy in which people were inherently intertwined with their world. Spinoza left instructions for his most important work, The Ethics, to be published after his death because he knew he would likely face torture and execution for the ways his relational worldview undermined both monotheistic religion and the dualistic philosophy that was emerging during his own time. Instead of a passive nature on one hand, and an active supernatural God on the other, Spinoza envisioned a holistic reality in which God is present in all things, and in which all things are active and dynamic processes. Everything is alive and connected. Mind and body, human and non-human, joy and sadness are intertwined with one another. We do not mean to present Spinoza's philosophy as a handbook for living in today's world. In many ways, Spinoza remained a product of his time and place. He used the geometric method to create proofs for his philosophical claims. He couldn't overcome patriarchal divisions and he remained wedded to the state as a vehicle for security. Our interest is not in Spinoza himself or even his philosophy as a whole, but in the way that his ideas are part of a minor current in Western thought that is more relational, holistic and dynamic. Spinoza's work remains marginal compared to that of Descartes and Hobbes but his relational worldview has nevertheless been taken up by radicals at the margins of philosophy, ecology, feminism, Marxism and anarchism. Most importantly for us, Spinoza's philosophy is grounded in affect. Things, do not, things are not defined by what they are, but by what they do, how they affect and are affected by the forces of the world. In this way, capabilities are not fixed for all time, but are constantly shifting. This is a fundamental departure from the inherently ableist and ageist perspective that measures all bodies in relation to the norm of a healthy, mature or able body. When starting right from a body's material specificity without any intervening should, learning becomes fundamentally different. Rather than detached categorization or observation of stable properties, it happens through active experimentation in shared, ever-changing situations.
from morality to ethics. By creating a philosophy based in affect, Spinoza initiated a radical critique of ruling institutions and authorities and the ways they exercise control through subjection, including toxic morality inherited from centuries of Christianity, heteropatriarchy, capitalism, and the state. But Spinoza's philosophy did not just undermine empire's dominant morality in order to replace it with a different one. It undermined morality itself. His worldview was at odds with any notion of an ultimate ground of right and wrong that was uniform for everyone, abstracted from the lively flux of relationships and situations. For Spinoza, life was an exploration of the forces of the world, not conformity to a fixed ideal. For moralists, this is dangerous because there's no guarantee against evil and no ultimate foundation for moral judgment. Yet the Spinozan lineage is not about everyone doing whatever they please according to isolated interests and preferences. On the contrary, recognising our interconnectedness means becoming capable of more fidelity to our web of relations and our situations, not less. This fidelity is not moral. It is ethical. Ethics is often spoke of, spoken of colloquially as an individual morality. A static set of principles held by individuals, ethical consumption, codes of ethics, and so on. In fact, dictionary definitions conflate ethics with the moral principles that govern a person's behaviour. But as Deleuze explains, a Spinozan conception of ethics results in a completely different set of questions. There's a fundamental difference between ethics and morality, Deleuze says. Spinoza doesn't make up a moralist, doesn't make up a morality for a very simple reason. He never asks what we must do. He always asks what we are capable of, what's in our power. Ethics is a problem of power, never a problem of duty. In this sense, Spinoza is profoundly immoral. Regarding the moral problem, good and evil, he has a happy nature because he doesn't even comprehend what this means. What he comprehends are good encounters, bad encounters, increases and diminutions of power. Thus, he makes an ethics and not at all a morality. I think it was Deleuze. Whereas morality asks and answers the question, what should one do? A Spinozan ethics asks, what is one capable of? Unlike the cold abstraction of morality, a body's capacities can only be discovered through attunement and experimentation, starting right where you are. You never know until you try. In trying, whether you succeed or fail, you will have learned and changed, and the situation will have changed, even if only slightly. This sounds simple, and in many ways it is. It speaks to the ways that many of us already try to navigate our everyday lives not by adhering to fixed commandments, but by learning to inhabit our own situations in ways that make us more capable and more jointly alive. Someone gets in touch with bird migrations, insects, weather patterns. They affect her more and more deeply as she tunes into their rhythms over months and years. They begin to make her up. The loss is palpable as fewer return each year, and her hatred of the destruction grows alongside her love of the few remaining refuges for non-human creatures where she lives. Her rage and despair finds resonance with others similarly entwined, and they figure out how to fight together. This is neither individual self-interest nor moral altruism. It is relational ethics. 
the willingness to nurture and defend relationships. Two friends fold their lives together. They draw new capacities out of each other. They hurt each other and they work through it, emerging more intertwined than before. They are no longer sure which ideas and mannerisms were their own and which belonged to the friend. They know each other's triggers and tendencies intimately. One finds himself in trouble and the other drops everything to help, a great personal risk. But this risk and sacrifice is not because it is morally right or because they have calculated that it is in their own self-interest. It is not even felt as a choice. It is something drawn out of them. Ethics is the dynamic space beyond static morality and vapid self-interest. It is the capacity to be responsive to the relationships that make us up. Whether consciously or not, our desires and choices are the product of everything that affects us. While this kind of thinking and practice may be intuitive, it runs against dominant strands of both Western knowledge and morality, which strive for universalism and generalizability. They tend towards pinning things down, dictating how we should act or predicting what is likely. They ask what humans are and always will be, what we should always do or what we usually do and how we can be controlled. In contrast, a Spinozan ethics is attuned to the singularity and openness of each situation. What are we capable of here and now, together at this time, in this place, amid the relations in which we are embedded. From this perspective, it is not about creating self-contained units, but about participating in complex, shifting relational processes. We always begin in the middle, amid our situations, in our neighbourhoods, with our own penchants, habits, loves, complicities and connections. There is no individual that comes before the dense network of relations in which we're embedded. This relational space eludes the traps of individual self-interest and moral duty. It is a space beyond isolated individuals and altruistic saviours. We are always participating in the making of our worlds and being made by them. From this perspective, freedom can mean nothing other than the ethical expansion of what we're capable of, what we're able to feel and do together. In this vein, the Invisible Committee writes, Freedom isn't the act of shedding our attachments, but the practical capacity to work on them, to move around in their space, to form or dissolve them. The freedom to uproot oneself has always been a phantasmic freedom. We can't rid ourselves of what binds us without at the same time losing the very thing to which our forces would be applied. Freedom here is not the absence of restriction or attachment, but the capacity to become more active in shaping our attachments. This becoming active is not about controlling things, but about learning to participate in their flow, forming intense bonds through which we become implicated in each other's struggles and capacities. Within the Spinozan current, friendship is being revalued, not as a bond between individuals, but as an ethical relation that remakes us together in an ongoing process of becoming otherwise. Similarly, feminist philosopher Donna Haraway has argued that making kin across divides of species, nation, gender and other borders is perhaps the most urgent task today. Through friendship or kinship, we undo ourselves and become new in potentially radical and dangerous ways. In this sense, freedom is at the root. And in this sense, sorry, friendship is at the root of freedom.
What can friendship do? Friendship will be the soil from which a new politics will emerge. Ivan Illich. Can friendship be revalued as a radical transformative form of kinship? We are not sure, but we want to try. Maybe the concept of friendship is already too colonised by liberalism and capitalism. Under neoliberalism, friendship is a banal affair of private preferences. We hang out, we share hobbies, we make small talk. We become friends with those who are already like us and we keep each other together and we keep each other comfortable rather than becoming different and more capable together. The algorithms of Facebook and other social networks guide us towards the refinement of our profiles, reducing friendship to the click of a button. This neoliberal friend is the alternative to hetero and homonormative coupling. Just friends implies a much weaker and insignificant bond than a lover could ever be. Under neoliberal friendship, we don't have each other's backs and our lives aren't tangled up together. But these insipid tendencies do not mean that friendships are pointless, only that friendship is a terrain of struggle. Empire works to usher its subjects into flimsy relationships where nothing is at stake and to infuse intimacy with violence and domination. Perhaps friendship can be revalued in an expansive but specific way. Friends, chosen family and other kin intimately connected in a web of mutual support. Intersecting currents of disability justice, youth liberation, queer movements, feminism, ecology, anarchism, indigenous resurgence and black liberation have all emphasised the centrality of nurturing strong relationships. In our conversation with Glenn Coulthard, he emphasised that militancy can never be an individual choice because transformation happens in and through relationships. As Glenn says, the first move towards some sort of self-affirmation or resurgence is often registered in a very negative reaction. Hate, envy, these sorts of things. This complicates the story a bit. In order to have a kind of joyful militant positionality or whatever, it requires a whole lot of other overwhelming positions on the world. And that is where I think relationships are crucial. I don't think that this is even possible to come to on your own. Am I going to respond to this oppressive situation through a form of self-destruction? Or am I going to try and live with it? Or am I going to try to channel it into more community building efforts? And I don't think that's ever done in a silo. Those are comrades that are working together in order to achieve that position. Those are through the hard conversations ranging from interventions to who knows what, just recognising that some relationships seem to be more empowering than others. So getting to be the joyful militant is complicated. It's a product of relationships. It's not the effect of doing relationships well. It's because we're already in relationships of solidarity. We're helping each other out. We're drawing people out of the negative into more positive relationships. Joyful militants aren't choosing and saying, oh, I'm going to do this. It's because I'm being interpolated into more positive relationships, which provide me with different perspectives on the world that draw me away from what would be entirely acceptable and rational. And that's despair. How do we not have despair in these situations that we're in? It's because relationships are drawing us away from that to the extent that they can, to the extent that they're successful. A joyful militant is less a product of a will to do so. There's a work we're constantly working on each other. I'm not going to blame the individual person if they're in a situation that is clearly miserable. In these times, feelings of despair, rage and hatred make sense. 
Maybe they even indicate a healthy receptivity to what is taking place, a refusal to numb ourselves to the pain and violence of empire. To shame people for being in touch with all this or to tell them to pull themselves out of it simply individualizes suffering. Change comes not from individuals, but from this constant working on each other, which we have called ethics and relational freedom. It might entail supporting each other to become more present with despair, guilt, resentment, fear or grief. It might include channeling anger into attacking empire, blocking its flows or breaking its hold, at least in part. Freedom is the space that opens when knee-jerk reactions and stifling habits are suspended. It is the parents learning to trust their kid. It is the teen who flees a violent home with support from friends. It is the scream of refusal that elicits rage and action from others. But the key is that one never does any of this alone. Whether a humbling gesture, whether a humble gesture causing a subtle shift or a decisive act catalyzing dramatic change, freedom, gentleness and militancy has always come from and feed back into the web of relationships and affections in which everyone is immersed. By creating relational webs that reinforce the values we aspire to, relationships can help undo patterns that empire has ingrained. Loving relationships can be what allow us to face the things we fear about ourselves. They can help undo the ways that we have internalized notions that we are not good enough, not worthy of love, or that we have to put up with things that deplete us and those we care about. Relationships of mutual love and support can enable us to see and feel the toxicity of some of our attachments. They can help us to look at our patterns of addiction or depression without shame. Those we love can be our reasons to stay alive when we aren't sure what that we want to. They can help us leave miserable situations by leaping with us into the unknown. Friendships can be the source of our capacity to take risks and get in the way of violence and exploitation. They can be what make us dangerous and capable of fighting in new ways. This might be something like what friend meant to some of our European ancestors before the witch trials, not just someone to hang out with, but also someone whose existence is inseparable from one's own. A relationship crucial to life, worth fighting for. A persnickety linguist or historian might object that there is no unbroken line of insurgent friendship that lies hidden in history. These critics are right. It is a zigzagging, disjointed line, always being broken and reassembled. A story among other stories, resonant with many other non-European genealogies of relational freedom. But this elusiveness is what makes it precious and powerful. It is people's capacity to constantly form new complicities amid terror and violence. Solidarity begins at home. I don't need to be empowered by adults. I need them to stop having power over me. Lila Joy Bergman, age nine. While friendship is made vapid by empire, coupledom and the nuclear family become the container for all other forms of intimacy. As anti-racist, indigenous and autonomous, autonomist feminists have shown, the nuclear family, where one generation of parents lives with one generation of children separated from everyone else, is a recent invention of empire. It was, and is, a crucial institution for the privatisation and enclosure of life. It is also central to the maintenance of a culture of authoritarianism, abuse and neglect that underpins heteropatriarchy and white supremacy. 
It evolved as a way of reproducing wage-laboring men through the unpaid labor of women. Violence against women and children within the family was condoned as part of a civilizing process, and it became a conduit for intergenerational violence and for the accumulation of white wealth and property through inheritance. Through feminist struggle, some of the most brutal state-sanctioned violence of the nuclear family, such as legalised rape and abuse, have been challenged, but it remains a site of isolation and violence for children in particular. One of its most brutal effects is that it makes other forms of intimacy difficult or unthinkable for many of us. Through suburbs and apartments designed for a privatised existence, the nuclear family is even coded into the built environment. At the same time, People are constantly inventing and recovering other kinds of belonging and intimacy. They are con creatively collectivizing and communalizing life, sharing income, food and housing in ways that break down privatization and segregation. As Silvia Federici writes, we also have a return to more extended types of families built not on blood ties, but on friendship relations. This, I think, is a model to follow. We are obviously in a period of transition and a great deal of experimentation, but opening up the family, hetero or gay, to a broader community, breaking down the walls that increasingly isolated it and prevented it from confronting its problems in a collective way is the path we must take not to be suffocated by it and instead strengthen our resistance to exploitation. The denuclearization of the family is the path to the, con to the construction of communities of resistance. Many indigenous people, people of colour and queer folks, have never been invited into the structure of the nuclear family and they've always made kin in other ways. Queer chosen families have created intimate intergenerational webs of support and these radical ties remain alive in spite of new forms of homonormative capture. As Dean Spade writes, in the, in the queer communities, I mean, valuing friendship is a really big deal often coming out of the fact that lots of us don't have family support and build deep supportive structures with other queers. We are interested in resisting the heteronormative family structure in which people are expected to form a dyad, marry, have kids and get all their needs met within that family structure. A lot of us see that as unhealthy, as a new technology of post-industrial late capitalism that is connected to alienating people from community and training them to think in terms of individuality, to value the smaller unit of the nuclear family rather than the extended family. Similarly, Bell Hooks points to, traditional, to, to traditions of informal adoption in black communities, in which people adopted and cared for children in ways that were communally recognised but never sanctioned by the state. Let's say you didn't have any children and your neighbour had eight kids. You might negotiate with her to adopt a child who would then come live with you, but, would there, there, but there would never be any kind of formal adoption. Yet everyone would recognise her as your play daughter. My community was unusual in that gay black men were also able to informally adopt children. And in this case, there was a kinship structure in the community where people would go home and visit their folks if they wanted to, stay with them or what have you. But they would also be able to stay with the person who was loving and parenting them. Leanne Simpson, writing on, indige on indigenous nationhood, notes how resurgence entails displacing settler colonialism and the nuclear family with big, beautiful, diverse, extended, multiracial families of relatives and friends that care very deeply for each other. In many ways, these kinds of relationships make possible and sustain the creation of intergenerational forms of organising that include kids and elders and break down divides between public and private. Simpson spoke to the importance of this when we interviewed her. How change happens matters to me. 
which is why I don't spend much time lobbying the state. I believe in creating the change on the ground and creating and living the alternatives. In my nation, children and elders are critical, and it means we organise differently. You can't invite kids to a 12-hour boring meeting and then get frustrated because they are bored or frustrated because they won't stay with the childcare worker they've never met. You can't invite the elders to welcome people to the territory and then not speak to the issues. I think we actually need to do less organising and more movement building. Right now we have activists, not leaders. We have actions, not community. My kids are also fundamentally not interested in the movement. They are, however, fundamentally interested in doing things. These kinds of non-nuclear kinship networks have been sustained in the face of state terrorism and incarceration, residential and boarding schools, and empires' ongoing attempts to privatise and destroy non-nuclear kinship networks, extended families, and webs of relationships that include non-human life. Nourishing and sustaining these communal forms of life throws into question some of the dominant ideas about what counts as political work, about separation of activism or organising from everyday life. They challenge the segregation of kids from the rest of the world and from organising and politics in particular and the ways that elders are isolated and intergenerational connections are lost. Creating intergenerational webs of intimacy and support is a radical act in a world that has privatised child-rearing, housing, subsistence and decision-making. Challenging the nuclear family is not about a puritanical rejection of anything that resembles it. It is about creating alternatives to its hegemony to the dismembering of social relations, to the spatial division of people through suburbanisation, incarceration, schooling, dispossession and displacement. This entails the proliferation of relationships that may or may not be based on blood, but are built on care and love. The Latin American political theorist Raul Zibeki argues that non-nuclear family and kinship networks are at the heart of Latin America's most transformative and militant movements, including those of indigenous peoples, peasant farmers, landless and homeless movements, picateros and women's and youth movements. These collective forms of life are based in new forms of dwelling, subsistence and resistance. At the same time, Zibeki is clear that these are only tendencies, aspirations or attempts in the midst of social struggles. Relationships of mutual support are not a destination, but a continual process of struggle. As people renew intergenerational relationships and bring their whole lives into struggle, new forms of politics emerge. In this context, Silvia Federici argues, this is why the idea of creating self-reproducing movements has been so powerful. It means creating a certain social fabric and forms of cooperative reproduction that can give continuity and strength to our struggles and a more solid base to our solidarity. We need to create forms of life in which political activism is not separated from the task of our daily reproduction so that relations of trust and commitment can develop that today remain on the horizon. We need to put our lives in common with the lives of other people to have movements that are solid and do not rise up and then dissipate. Sharing reproduction, this is what began to happen within the Occupy movement and what usually happens when a struggle reaches a moment of almost insurrectional power. For example, when a strike goes on for several months, people begin to put their lives in common because they have to mobilise all their resources not to be defeated. Federici here gets at the way in which care is not only a means of maintaining struggles, but also a transformative part of struggle itself. While empire works to privatise and individualise our daily lives, many movements are reproducing themselves more autonomously by collectivising care, from cooking to cohabitation to learning to just being present with each other. 
Friendship, kinship and communalization have also been at the heart of working across the hierarchical divisions of heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, colonization, ableism, ecocide and other systems that have taught us to enact violence on, on each other and internalize oppressive ways of relating. To make kin across these divisions is a precarious and radical act. Everyone knows how difficult this can be and how people fuck up, hurt each other and blame each other. Those conscripted into oppressive roles can always fall back into old habits. In some cases, people are able to talk about all this in ways that are subtle, gentle, and more attuned to each other's tendencies, triggers, and gifts, and genuine, genuine relations of support emerge. In the context of queer anti-racist disability justice, Mio Mingus speaks to the centrality of strong relationships for undoing oppression. Any kind of systematic change we want to make will require us to work together to do it. And we have to have relationships strong enough to hold us as we go up against something as powerful as the state, the medical industrial complex, the prison system, the gender binary system, the church, immigration system, the war machine, global capitalism. Because we're going to mess up. Of that I am sure. We cannot on the one hand have sharp analysis about how pervasive systems of oppression and violence are, and then on the other hand expect people to act like that's not the world we exist in. Of course there are times we are going to do and say oppressive things. Of course we are going to hurt each other. Of course we are going to be violent, collude in violence, or accept violence as normal. We must roll up our sleeves and start doing the hard work of learning how to work through conflict, pain and hurt, as if our lives depended on it, because they do. Between the authors of this book, friendship has required us to negotiate t divisions ingrained in our bodies by ageism, patriarchy, capitalism and ableism. Sometimes these divisions get in the way of our capacity to connect in ways that are enabling and transformative. Patriarchy has socialised Nick as a man to be self-assured, overconfident, rational and individualistic. Carla has been socialised to be submissive, caring, diffident and to put others before herself. Even as we worked against some of these tendencies, Carla ended up doing more emotional and caring labour for this project, and Nick ended up doing more labour when it came to writing and editing. We've also been learning to challenge these divisions, always partially and inconsistently, through processes of mutual growth, support and unlearning. In part because of our very different life experiences, skill sets and perspectives, our collaborative process has enabled us to produce something new together, and made us both more capable in new ways. Neither of us could have written this book or anything like it alone. Okay, that was from Joyful Militancy, Montgomery and Bergman, pages 83 to 105. Uh, it's AK Press if you're interested. Razor Smell. Doing philosophy in public. Monday nights on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash Razor Smile. Recordings available on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, there's a Discord if you want to get in touch. Check it all out on the Twitch page.